Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Morning, church family. I started last week by saying, when times are tough, it's good to look back. And I want to flip the coin this week. I want to say, when times are easy, it's easy to forget. When it's comfortable, when it's safe, good times, it's easy to forget. When it's easy, it's easy to forget. Let me read Luke chapter 12, this famous story from Jesus, verse 16. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. That's a tough problem, isn't it? I've got way too much stuff. Where do I keep it all? And he said, here's what I'm going to do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and drink, and be merry. When, whenever somebody refers to themselves in the third person, you've got to watch out, right? But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. When times are easy, it's easy to forget. To forget God, make life all about you, your possessions, your treasures, your self-made kingdom on earth. Uh, we keep touching back to Deuteronomy. And I talked about Deuteronomy last week. Moses is 120. These are his three farewell speeches before the next generation goes into the promised land and gets to experience all that God has promised them and brought them to. And he's telling them, don't forget. Remember God. Remember what he's done. The old generation's gone. The ones who lived in slavery, the ones who saw the plagues, the ones who walked through the Red Sea on the dry ground, the ones who wandered in the wilderness, the ones who have come all the way here, they're gone. Moses is concerned that the next generation is going to forget, which, which could come particularly easy in this next time. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 10. Listen to what Moses looks ahead and what he sees in the future. He's, he's talking to them kind of prophetically here. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you. Last week we talked about generations and remembering the people on the road before us, honoring them, remembering what God did in that generation and seeing him do it again in ours. With great and good cities that you didn't build, Houses full of all good things that you did not fill. Cisterns with good drinking water that you didn't dig. Vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. And when you eat and are full. I'm just thinking about Christmas, right? This is, this is Thanksgiving weekend in, in America, right? You eat that big turkey dinner. You're full. And then comes dessert, and then you're more full. And then you sit back on the couch, you put on the football game. That's kind of the picture that I'm getting here. When you've had your full, when you've eaten your full, then take care. In that moment, in that season where life is good, the grandma's apple pie 
was good. The turkey, the ham dinner was good. And you have just eaten and you're satisfied. You feasted like the Who's Feast in Whoville. And you just sit back. Life is good. In that season, then, take care. Extra caution, lest you forget the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And brought you all of these things that you didn't build, you didn't plant, you didn't dig, and now you're enjoying what God has brought you. In that season, be so very careful. And then two chapters later, Deuteronomy chapter 8, take care lest you forget the Lord, your God, by not keeping his commandments, his rules, his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, that sounds like a good season of life right there, isn't it? You get a big windfall in the stock market. Then your heart be lifted up, puffed up. Pride sets in. Look at what I've accomplished. And you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Not just when you receive all the lands, the wells, and the vineyard, but also when you start to see your wealth increase and the land produce for you and harvest, double, and interest on the funds. When life is easy, it's easy to forget. Do you remember what it was like starting out? No money. Elsie and I didn't have jobs when we got married. I lived at my in-law's house. That humbles you. <laughs> and you don't really have a plan for the future. It's just unknown, uncertain. <laughs> and your prayer is, God, what does the future look like for us? And then you go apartment hunting. After you get your first job, you travel to New Brunswick where you really don't know many people and you're looking at apartments and you walk down in the basement of this building and you smell that smell and you think, God, is this going to be our first apartment? Is this going to be the first place where my wife and I start our lives together? God, would you, would you show us? Would you make it clear? And then the tire goes on the car. Then the second tire. And then after we've been through six tires on the same car, and I'm pulling my hair out, and you take it to the mechanic, and they're not just fixing the tire, they're changing your air filter, and they're changing the light bulb, and I don't have money to cover all those additional costs that they didn't ask me about. How do people afford cars? God, you have to help us here. We... And I remember going to the laundromat for the first time, my first and only time. And we walked in, I've got a big bag of coins. I don't know where I got the coins from, but I remember walking in, taking the coins out of the bag, putting them into this coin-operated washing machine, which I've only done once in my life, and it wouldn't work. So the next coin, I put it in. It wouldn't work. Next coin, I put it in. I'm at 75 cents now, so it's getting serious. And it's still not working. So I talked to the owner, and she's like, well, here, let me give, give it a try. And she starts taking coins into the machine, coins into the machine, coins into the machine, and the machine is eating half of my bag of laundry money, and I remember sitting there thinking, God, you have to help us here. We're not going to be able to do this every, however often we need to do laundry as a married couple. I don't know what that looks like because I've never done it before. It's just all unknown. God, you need to help us. Elsie and I celebrated 10 years of 
marriage this past summer, so we're getting some clicks on the old odometer, right? And we were talking about the early days, and I mentioned, do you remember how long that first pound of butter lasted? Because I was so cheap and so frugal. (laughs) If I take too much butter on my toast while that's living beyond our means, I think that first block of butter lasted like six months. (laughs) I don't know how that happened. (laughs) The Lord multiplied it, yeah. Those early years, they take a lot of faith, a lot of prayer, a lot of uncertainty, because it's just all new, all unknown. Where do we go from here? God, we need you. The Hebrew people had 40 years of uncertainty. God, where are we going today? Oh, there's the cloud. There's the pillar of fire. God, we're getting hungry. We remember the leeks and the lemons of Egypt. What are we going to eat today? Oh, there's the manna. Oh, wait, we can't take more than just today's supply? So we have to wait until tomorrow to see if you make it appear again so that we can have something to eat. The quail, you just blew it in on this weird wind and it's hovering in front of us. We can just reach out and take quail and that's what we're going to eat today. God, we're in the desert. Where do we get our water? We're just going to have to trust you that when you say Moses is going to hit a rock and water is going to come out, that it's going to happen. 40 years of uncertainty. The early days, unknown, where all they had was what God provided them with. You know, their clothes and their shoes lasted 40 years. Longer than that butter. You can't forget God when you need him. When you're totally relying on God every single day to just get through the day, you can't forget God. Because he's your only source. He's your only supply. If you want to eat that day, well, it's only from God's hand. If you want to know where you're going to sleep that night, well, it's only from God's hand. You can't forget God when you need him, but it's when life is easy, when pride creeps in, our self-made accomplishments, our reserves, our assets. Moses says there are going to be great cities. There's going to be good houses. It's going to be good land, wells of water, good water, vineyards, fruit trees that are all ready to be harvested. You have to remember, you didn't plant them. You didn't dig them. You didn't build them. It's all a gift from God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, through the wilderness, into the promised land. Don't forget. Don't forget. When you find your forever home, when you settle down, your business grows, the fridge is full, the investments start delivering returns, your big question is, where do we store our stuff? Your kids succeed, grandkids come along, life is good. It's easy to forget God. Then your heart be lifted up. You forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, not too many decades ago. So Joshua takes over for Moses. I love Joshua, love his story, love his name, great name. God is my salvation. Uh, Joshua 4, the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan River. You remember this? And as, as the sole of their sandal touches into 
the river. I don't know if it touched the water or if the water separated around it. It says all the water stood up on its end. So as this river is flowing, it's just building up and they're standing there. And then Joshua says, hold it, stand there in the river, hold the ark. All the people are going to pass by. All the people? How many people? All the people. They're going to stand there, hold the ark. I don't know how they did that. God must have supplied strength. And then all the people go through. Okay, can we walk through now? No, just wait. One more thing. I'm going to send 12 men into the river, grab 12 stones and set them up right here so that all the future generations can remember. When your kids see this, you can say, here's what God did at the Jordan River. And then they cross over into the land of Gilgal, Joshua 5. Joshua circumcises all the men because the previous generation who had been circumcised in Egypt were no longer. The people in the wilderness didn't get circumcised as they were going through the wilderness. Circumcision was a sign and a mark, a memory aid for the people to know that they were set apart unto God. So Joshua does that to the people at Gilgal and then Joshua has them celebrate the Passover, which we've talked about all three weeks because that's another memory aid, the Lord's table. They celebrate the Passover to remember how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And then Joshua chapter 5 and verse 11. Get the timing of this. The day after the Passover, on that very day, that's pretty clear, isn't it? They ate of the produce of the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan that God brought them into, flowing with milk and honey, unleavened cakes, parched grain, verse 12. The manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. The manna stopped. The manna, that thing that they called, what is it? Because they didn't know, because it just appeared on the ground every morning. It was their daily bread, their sustenance from God, who was their source of life. Every day they had to get this bread to survive. The day after they eat the food in the promised land, the manna stops. No more manna. You don't need the manna. Now you have my promised land. You don't need the manna you have the fruit of the land. The manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. There was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now that might seem insignificant, small thing. Or is it? They no longer needed what God had to provide for them every single day. And God's still providing food for them through the promised land that he promised to them. It just it's not as clear and direct as every day waking up and thinking, God, have you given us your, our breakfast this morning? No, now they can look out over their wheat fields and their vineyards and their fig trees and they can say, we have what we need for a while. There's a conquest, the promised land. Joshua's an exciting book, you gotta read it, especially the first number of chapters. Jericho, the walls come down. Ai, Achan, Hiding the bacon under his tent. You remember that? Incredible victories. There's lessons learned. At the end of the conquest, all of the fighting, the majority, the big battle is over. Joshua says this in chapter 22 towards the end of the book. Now the Lord your God has given rest. Remember what Moses said? Take care. Because when the rest comes, when life is easy, it's easy to forget. God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies. They've been waiting decades for this. Go home. The war's done. Find your tent, the land that you possess on your own land, and just rest. Sounds good, doesn't it? 
which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Moses talked about all of this. Moses warned them. Joshua is about to warn them. In chapter 24, Joshua goes through the whole history of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, Joseph, his son, who became prince in Egypt, and then the slavery in Egypt, Moses, the ten plagues, through the Red Sea, the wilderness wanderings, through the conquest of the promised land, and now they're here. Joshua takes them through the whole thing. He's telling them, this is where we came from. Don't forget, this is the history of our people. And then he says this, choose you this day whom you will serve. And here are the options. You can serve all of the gods of the people of this land, the Baals, the Ashtaroth, all of the carved images, or you can serve the God who brought us out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. And then he says this, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's that generational aspect that we talked about last week. Joshua was going to make certain that he and the generations that followed after him and his family, they ought to know, we are going to serve the Lord. Me and my house. And then the people agree. They swear to it. We're going to serve God. Joshua engraves it on a stone under a terebinth tree next to the sanctuary so that the people would always remember. And Joshua chapter 24 and verse 5. Be very careful to observe the commandment. Remember what Steve said two weeks ago? It's not just that we cognitively remember. It's not just that we memorize a list. It's not just that we can spout off the Ten Commandments, but it's so that we can observe the commandments, so that we can do them, we can apply them, we can act on that knowledge, not just remember them. Commandment, the law, Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That sounds like Deuteronomy 6, doesn't it? The Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These things shall be, teach them to your kids as you're going, in your coming, remember, remember, remember. Joshua says the same thing. All right. At the end of Joshua's life, it gives this, this, little, this little nugget, the end of chapter 24, and I really like this. Verse 31, Israel served the Lord all of the days of Joshua. All of the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all of the work the Lord did for Israel. That previous generation that served under Joshua, who saw what God did, knew what God did, held on to the memory and the commandments and the stories and the history, as long as they were alive and their example was there and people could see Joshua and the leaders who led with him, they served the Lord. And then you flip the page in your Bible and you come to the book of Judges. Turn to Judges chapter 2 if you would. This is what I want to call the forgetfulness cycle. And I know you know this quote. I'm going to read it for you. Some people attribute it to um, Winston Churchill, but it was actually George Santayana in 1905, I believe, a Spanish philosopher. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You've heard that? You forget the past? You're going to relive it. You're not going to learn those lessons. You're going to repeat what the previous generation messed up. You're going to do it yourself. If you cannot remember the past, you're condemned to repeat it. 
This is the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. Joshua dies, 110 years old. And all that generation also, the leaders who led with Joshua, they were gathered to their fathers, which is a nice way of saying they, they passed on. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Another generation after them forgot what God did for his people Israel. How is that? How do they forget? How does it happen so quickly? We talked about this, this generational element of passing on faith and value. How did that not happen? There's this slow compromise in the early chapters of Judges, and it, it illustrates this point time and time again. And I, I want to read you a fairly significant portion of Scripture from Judges chapter 2. Um, and I didn't ask the guys to put it on the screen. I'm not going to have it here. I just want to read it for you. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people that were around them. They bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. Judges chapter 2 and verse 13. They abandoned the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So, because they did that, because they abandoned God, because they didn't listen, because they didn't follow his ways, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Get this, I want you to hear this. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. This is God's people. The hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. That's difficult to hear, isn't it? That God and God's chosen people would be at such odds. That God would have his hand against them when they went out for battle. I thought that he said to Joshua, be strong, courageous, do not be dismayed, for I am with you wherever you go. And now he's saying, I'm against you. You know what? my parents had to put their hand against my bottom a number of times growing up. I won't tell you when the last one was, but it was my fault. It wasn't because they were against me, it was ultimately because they were for me. And they knew that if I kept going on the path that my heart desired, where it was going to end up. It was the hand of correction. But look at God's act of mercy towards his people. Judges chapter 2, continuing in verse 16. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and they were more corrupt than their fathers. It's like this tailspin. They're going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices 
or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice because of their disobedience, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is what happened to Israel when they forgot the God of their fathers, when they forgot how God freed them from slavery, when they forgot how God parted the Red Sea, how God brought the manna, how God brought the water, how God brought the quail, how God led them through the wilderness, how God brought them over the Jordan River, how God gave them victory at Jericho, and on and on and on, when they forgot all that God did for them, this is what you find. And it happens 12 times in the book of Judges. And each generation is more corrupt than the one before it. And they just get more fixed in their stubborn ways. But every time they cry out, God sends a judge, a rescuer, picture of Jesus, the ultimate rescuer who God sent to free us from our slavery and oppression of sin. Every time he sent a judge, there was rest in the land. There was good in the land. So good that the people forgot God. And they got themselves into trouble and slavery and oppression. And then they remembered, oh yeah, it was God that got us out of this in the first place. Let's cry out to him. And God in his pity got them out. And the land had rest. And they forgot God. This cycle, 12 times. This cycle of forgetfulness. I love how the Apostle Paul summarizes this very problem in Romans chapter 1. Verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel the good news of Jesus. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I love that. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. I think there's a generational aspect there. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk chapter two and verse four. Righteousness has always been by faith. Salvation has always been by faith. Even in the Old Testament, even in the sacrificial system, it was always in faith of the coming Messiah. It wasn't this lamb that we're slaying, but the picture that this lamb is of the coming lamb who would die for the sins of the world. It's always been by faith for whoever. And the invitation is extended to everyone. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I love this picture here. When I looked up this word in my Greek lexicon, it, it gave the picture of a ship trying to get into safe harbor, but it's being stopped. It's being held back. It cannot access the harbor, harbor because something is inhibiting it from doing so. The ship is being suppressed. It can't get in. It's trying to get in, but it's being stopped by something or someone. I don't know if it's a tugboat, if they sometimes do that, if the harbor's too full, but the ship can't get in. God is trying to reach into the heart and life of every human being on the face of the planet. He's extended his invitation to everyone. He moved first. He stepped down first. Jesus Christ died in our place before any of us in this room were even born. He gave us the invitation first. He's trying to get his truth to us. 
And because of unrighteousness, we've suppressed the truth. We've stopped that truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, that's hard to explain to people, isn't it? If it's invisible, you can't see it. Divine, there's not many things on this earth you can point to and say it is divine because everything we have is created. His eternal power is divine nature. It's been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. If you live in this world, you are without excuse that there is a creator, that there is a designer, that there is a God who initiated and sustains and holds up and keeps in perfect peace everything, this whole balance of the universe, it's all because there's a creator. If you've been in the room when your child's been born or a child has been born, how can you experience that and not say that this miracle of childbirth just points to the fact that there is a God, there's a creator, a designer, when that little child is born and has their first cry and you cut the umbilical cord, it's a picture that there is a God, there is a creator. When you stand on the mountaintop and you look across and you think, look at the expanse of this incredible planet, what am I? You realize how small and insignificant you are in the expanse of the universe. There must be a God. There must be a God. It's plain. It's plain to see. You can't live through this life and think, there can't be a God. It's because we're suppressing the truth. Romans 1 and verse 21. For although they knew God, that's gnosko, which means an experiential knowledge. You know because you've experienced it. You know because you've seen that child be born. You know because you've climbed that mountain. You know because you've experienced a snowstorm and thought, how did we ever last this long as the human race? It's only because of God's providence. They knew God, but they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile, empty, vain, hollow in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. This is what the people of Israel did in the promised land, in the book of Judges, time and time again. They turned from the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery, and they turned to the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the idols, the false gods. Time and time again. Verse 24. So here's what happened. They forgot God. Therefore, because they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness, they refused to receive the invitation that God was sending them. They turned away from God time and time again to all of the false idols and false gods. Therefore, because of all that, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. You know, as much as you want as a parent or a friend or a coworker to get that person to understand the lesson and not have to live through it the hard way, sometimes you have to let them. Sometimes God has to allow us to experience what we think our heart truly desires to understand that that's not at all what our heart desires. What we really need is God. 
And sometimes we run back to God with our finger wagging in the air like a toddler with a tantrum and we say, how could you? Why didn't you? You must not love me if you're not going to let me. If you loved me, then you would. And God graciously extends his invitation to us again. God's not thumbing his nose at us saying, I told you so. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Peter talks about a list of qualities that Christians should be practicing, not just remembering, not just memorizing a list for the sake of memorizing a list, but remembering to do, to practice, to be these qualities that he lists out. Verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the knowledge of Jesus isn't just knowledge for us to know, it's knowledge for us to practice, to live out fruit. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now we go to God and we say, God, how could you let this happen? Why am I at where I'm at? What am I supposed to do? The future looks so grim. And we're so frustrated that God hasn't acted the way that we wanted him to because we've forgotten him. We've gone our own way and we followed. And we're forgetting the whole time that God already did. God, why didn't you? Well, because he already did. Any of the pain or the suffering that we're experiencing today, God took care of the root of that at the cross. Jesus died on the cross carrying your sin and took it to the grave and he left it there when he rose again to give you new life and a home and victory over that sin that now we're experiencing the effects and the suffering of. God already did. He took care of it. How quickly we forget that God has already taken care of the main thing. God has already taken care of this problem of sin. And anything that we complained back at him to pales in comparison to what he's already done for us. How quickly we forget. Um, just in closing, um, here's the reality. We, we can talk about how we can forget God. But the reality is that God will never forget you. You can forget God when times are easy. And it goes in this cycle of forgetting and remembering. But the ultimate reality is that God will never forget you. Isaiah says that he's engraving you on the palms of his hands. I just picture those nail scars Jesus has and what he went through for, for you and for me. I think about Joshua and, and that verse that I mentioned and how God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Moses said the same thing. God said the same thing to Moses. Hebrews chapter 13, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Deuteronomy 4, God will not forget the promise he made with your fathers. Jesus on the cross, one of the criminals being crucified looks at him and says, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I assure you, truly, truly, fairly, fairly, today you will be with me in paradise. God's not going to forget you. I was doing my devotions this week and I got to uh, Genesis chapter 8, reading the story of Noah. You remember the story of Noah? 
I want to close with this story. Noah, how old was Noah when the floodwaters came up on the earth? 600 years old. How crazy is that? So for all these years, he's been building this ark that God gave him all these instructions for, and he's been preaching the coming judgment of God, and nobody's listening. They all think he's a crazy kook building this big boat in the desert saying, God told me to build this boat for years and years and years. And then the flood comes, and all the animals get on. Noah, his three sons, their wives, the whole family, they get onto the ark, and then this is really cool. Chapter 7, it says that God shut the door behind them. Then the flood waters come up and they rise for 40 days. And it says the flood was on the earth and receding from the earth for 150 days. That's five months. Noah's in the ark. Animals are in the ark. I have to imagine it's dark in there. It's stinky. It's disgusting. And all the while they're thinking, God promised. This is God's plan. God told us to do this. God brought those animals. You saw how they came two by two, every creature. We're in this ark. And then the start of chapter 8. I love this. I've never noticed this before. Genesis 8 and verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts, all the livestock that were with him in the ark, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. For 150 days, these waters are subsiding and Noah sends out the birds, and he's trying to figure out if the land is prepared, and then God says, it's time to get out of the ark, Noah. And they climb out. Noah makes a sacrifice to God, and and God enters into this conversation with Noah, and they set up this new covenant, the Noahic covenant. Never again will I flood the earth. And in order to make that promise and to set a reminder, I'm going to set my bow in the sky. I would love to know someday if that's the bow, like the bow and arrow of God. God takes that bow and he sets it in the sky. And then it says in Genesis 9, 14, when I bring the clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds. When times are dark, when times are tough, when the clouds set in and it's just gray and gloomy and they say when it rains, it pours, then you can see the bow in the clouds. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant. Is that just cheeky language? Like, does God really remember? Like, did God say, hey, Siri, can you set a reminder for five months from now to tell Noah to come out of the ark and open the door for him? No, I think, I think God was well aware and knowing what was going on in that ark, keeping a watch not, not far away. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Every time you see the rainbow, it's a reminder that God will never forget. God will never forget. In tough times, that bow can be seen in the clouds. God will never forget you. We can forget God. And that's the caution of this morning's message, that we could just make everything we do here all about head knowledge and memorizing a bunch of verses. But if we never practice it, if we never remember to, if we never pass these stories on to the next generation, the faith, the values, the virtues, what God has done in our generation, 
If we forget God, it's this tailspin cycle. But God will never forget you. God will never forget you. God could never forget you. Let's bow in prayer this morning if we could. Father God, I want to thank you so much for who you are. I praise you, God, for the wonders and the works, the miracles of old that you've done. I thank you for what you're doing today. I thank you for what you're going to do in the future. God, we pray that in our ease, in our comfort, when life is good, God, help us to count our blessings. Help us to attribute everything as a gift from your hands coming down from the Father of lights. Help us not to take any pride or any sense of um, ownership or earning over what we have, but to be good stewards, understanding it's all from your hand, Father. God, help us not to forget you. Help us to have daily practices. Help us to maintain this weekly practice of coming together, of worshiping you, celebrating all that you've done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. God, we thank you that you are a great and amazing God. How could we forget you? God, thank you for remembering us. Thank you for being so near to the brokenhearted. Thank you for being a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us. Thank you for extending your invitation to us of the death of your son, the payment for our sins in our place. God, I pray that through faith we would receive that. Thank you for how you've washed our sins white as snow through the blood of Jesus. Thank you that you are true to your promises. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.